The message this morning is entitled um, Raised to Ensure Forgiveness. That's what the resurrection is all about. As you know, there were two men who were crucified with Jesus Christ, one on the left and the other one on the right. And um, they both heard the first saying from the cross in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, if you were with us, that doesn't mean they weren't guilty or they weren't responsible. It means they really didn't know the full ramification of their actions, just like you and I when we sin or do something. We don't know how it will affect us and how devastation and all the destruction that will bring down the road. We're still guilty, still responsible, but we're so caught up in the immediate that we can't see the ramifications that will come to our lives. And that's what he meant. Now, both of those men heard that. As the morning wore on, as you know, one of them had a change of heart. And as um, they were hanging on the cross, he confronted the other thief or criminal, rebuking him. He says, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. In Luke 24, 23, 40, and 41. Now something happened from the first statement to this point before the second saying. Two men equally distant. They heard the same thing. Two men equally guilty. Condemned for their crime. Two men deserving that sentence and death. And yet one was convicted of his sin and saw himself as separated from God in need of God. And as we'll see, calls upon God. The other one, stone cold hard. Now some of you that are born again know exactly by experience. You heard the gospel at one time and then there were friends with you or others. You made a decision for Christ. They still have not. You're both equally guilty for sin. Both equally under the wrath of God. Both equally deserving hell. Yet you responded to the conviction of the Spirit of God and trusted the grace of God. And the other ones? Now that decision made all the difference in the world. Where God says you will spend eternity with Him after you die. And those that don't will be separated from Him for all eternity. It isn't based on favoritism. It's based upon your response to belief to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is so imperative, important to be preached. What an accurate picture of what man is like thinking that he doesn't need God or salvation or be forgiven because he thinks he's good enough. Um, it was at this point where the thief turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gives the second word and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke twenty three forty three. Today you will be with me in paradise. When I die and you die, we're going to be together. We're going to go down. We're going to descend to hell. We're going to pick up all those who died in hell in the bosom of Abraham that died by faith. And we're going to take you to heaven. You're going to be with me. The other thief, he would remain in hell and the place of torment. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. It may be true that there's two sides to every question. Equally as there are two sides to flypaper. 
And it makes a big difference what side that fly chooses. Those of you that are young and don't know fly paper, it's when you roll it out, one side's sticky, the other one is not. If the fly chooses the sticky part, he's a dead man. Chooses the other side, he gets to fly another day. It makes a big difference the choice you make regarding Jesus Christ. So, on Easter morning, the tomb of Jesus was found empty. Proclaiming the hope for mankind, for Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. The angel said to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? In Luke 24, 5. The grave couldn't hold them. They were afraid of the, who's going to roll that big stone away. When they got there, it was, it was rolled away. The angel was sitting on top of it. Hey, what are you guys doing here? So let me speak to you about the oneness of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ by looking um, at it through a threefold lens. First, the life of Christ was looking towards the cross. Secondly, the cross of Christ was looking towards the resurrection. And thirdly, the resurrection of Christ was looking towards the forgiveness of sinners. There was a beginning point that had to take place. There was a goal. Let's begin with the life of Christ was looking towards the cross. As you know, Jesus was God who became incarnate, who became man. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. From the beginning, He was eternal. He was God. He was with the Father in sweet fellowship. But He abandoned that fellowship to become man. He became flesh. He abdicated His throne. He abdicated His... Uh, his glory, never his deity. So when he came, he became man, but he was still God. When he left, he was still God, and he's still God today. You can't be more than God, but you can be less than God. He became man, one just like us. Jesus was the promised Messiah, as you know, who had come according to the prophetic eternal schedule. Now, God is in the throne and he's ruling and he knows all that's going on in the world. All through the generations, he knew about World War I, World War II, Korea. He knows about all the terrorism today. He knows about all where we're going, everything. But God's not responsible for the evil that goes on in the world. Okay? The evil in the world we see is because of man, you and I. We're fallen. We're evil. Now God's aware of everything on. When Adam fell, evil came into the world. And so what goes on right now is the result of man's desire for power. He's greedy. Somebody always wants a bigger piece of the pie. Jesus came according to God's schedule. In Genesis 3.15, he says the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman meant virgin birth. Because a woman doesn't have any seed. She has the egg. The man provides the seed. So there you have the first proclamation that one day God would send a son and he would be conceived by the Spirit of God, as Matthew one twenty three says. He told Mary and he would be the promised Messiah to redeem mankind. The promise was given to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. says, and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Not just Gentile, not just Jew, not just Jew or just, but both. The Gentiles were always included, but the schedule was a little different. The first 2,000 years, it was through Israel. 
Gentiles could proselyte in. Then through the 400 years of silence, then you have Jesus Christ coming. Now you have a Jew, Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. So the Gentiles were always included. It was just a matter of God's scheduling time. He is the Shiloh that was to come, Messiah, in Genesis 49.10. He's the kingsman redeemer, the Goel, that is spoken about in Numbers and Leviticus, who had the right to redeem a, a, a brother or a sister or relative out of bondage or get, regain property, redeem it back as Ruth and Boaz. Um, he is the seed of David that was promised to him in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17. Short-term-wise, it was the promise of Solomon, his son, and long-term-wise, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the line of David. That's why the genealogy in Matthew and then in Luke. You have an ascension, you have a dissension, one through Nathan, one through Solomon, all coming as a promised seed. He was a child born, a son given, as Isaiah 9, 6 says. God's gift to us. He was the one who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 5 says. He was the king of the Jews that rode in and the triumphal entry in Zacharias 9.9 and Matthew 21, riding on the coal of a donkey. And he came in the fullness of time, right on schedule. Galatians 4.4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son made of a woman under the law, right on time. You ever read in the gospel where one of the ladies, the lady had the issue of blood or, 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 one, or the beggar or the blind man say, Jesus, 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 wait, wait, I got to get here for, I'll be right back. I'm, I'm kind of late. He's never late. He's right on time. Now, sometimes we get in trouble and we're all pressured and everything, so we think that God's late. But, but he's not. He's never missed an appointment. Jesus was born to die on the cross. You and I are born into this world. Eventually we'll die. But he purposely was born to die for you and for me. That's why he came. Simon the priest um, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel declared to Mary uh, when she dedicated Jesus in uh, Luke 2, 34 through 35. Listen to what he says. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own souls, also speaking to Mary, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He was prophesying that he was the Messiah ver in verification, but that he, would, he was born to die and her heart would be broken. You can imagine Mary, she's anywhere from 14 to 16, maybe 17 at this point. And all that she bore in her heart, realizing all that was going to happen to her son, though he was God, <laughs> her son. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, in John 1, 29. Every Jew understood that. When he said that, when he pointed to the disciples to Jesus Christ and said that, every Jew understood. They saw a priest, they saw a court, they saw a person coming in, bringing an animal. They saw him tying him up to a pole. They saw that person taking a knife, cutting the throat of that animal, blood going up, the animal hitting the ground. And as they looked at that dead animal, they were to remind themselves, that is what I deserve. And that animal took my place. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, would take the place of sinners on the cross. Caiaphas, a high priest, if you remember, prophesied in John eleven forty nine through 51. And he said, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing of all, 
nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So stop and think about it. This man, Caiaphas, he's one of the most hypocritical, evil religious rulers. And yet God used him to prophesy a truth, a prophecy about the death of Jesus Christ, that he would die rather than the nation perish. God speaks to anybody he wants. And when that revelation comes forth, in whichever way he does that, it's absolute truth. Sometimes they understood it if they were prophets, sometimes they did not. But either way, it's a proclamation that's registered within the scriptures to let you know that it is God's word and God cannot lie. And therefore, it will come to pass. Now, whatever the prophecy may be, if it regards evil, God doesn't force the person to do the evil. God only declares that the evil will be done because he knows what every person will do. Because if God forced a person to do the evil he prophesied about, then God would be responsible for the evil and he couldn't hold a person responsible for the wrong they did, right? I mean, you're walking down the street with your son, you pick up a rock and you throw it through a window and then the person comes out and says, he did it, you know? No. You would be, you're responsible or you tell your son to do it and then you would be responsible. You couldn't blame him. So God knows all the evil that will go on. God knows everything that people will say and do and how they'll respond. So he can tell us things before they happen. So when they happen, you know it's God. That's what prophecy is. It's not looking at the crystal ball and hopefully come true. God knows it. But he's not responsible for your evil or for mine. We are responsible for that. And yet his love for us is so immense in spite of that. Stop and think, how merciful would you be to yourself if you were God? How many times would you forgive you? We, we'd all, we're in bad shape. Listen to the love of God. Luther called on John 3.16, the heart of the Bible, the gospel, in miniature. It's so simple, a child can understand it, he says, yet it is condensed the deep and marvelous truths of redemption into these few pugnant words. Listen carefully, John 3.16. God, the greatest lover. So love the greatest degree, the world the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, the only begotten son the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest invitation believeth the greatest simplicity, in him the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. If all you had was John 3.16, to preach from the pulpit, you would need nothing else. Nothing else for man to be accountable before God. Everyone who's born again knows John 3.16. <laughs> they may not know anything else, but they know John 3.16. The cross, ladies and gentlemen, is a place of judgment on sin in the person of God's Son for the world. Uh, he's the one who satisfied God's demands. First John 2, 2, the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world. That which um, not only met the requirement, but satisfied it. The cross is the place where Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. First Timothy 2, 6. 
Some people say, well, you know, maybe God didn't call me. Well, how do you know he didn't call you? Well, I haven't come. Why haven't you come? Because I don't want to come. Okay, then you have the right to go to hell. But you can't blame God. You see, you can go to hell if you want to, but you don't have to go there. You can't go to heaven. He died for all, but not all will come because not all will see themselves in need of salvation or even care to be saved. God excludes no person, not one. The just for the unjust, First Peter 3.18 tells us. He died for sinners, Romans 5.8. He died for the ungodly, Romans 5.6. He died for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Revelation 5.9 He died for fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. I presume we all qualify somewhere in there. Who would you have died for? Or so... So far separated from God. He's so different. Thank God for him. The life of Christ was looking towards the cross. That's why he came. He came to die on a cross. Secondly, comes the cross of Christ. It was looking towards the resurrection. If we only had the cross, then there'd be no hope. You just have a martyr die. Good man. Jesus told Nicodemus about the need of the cross and the resurrection. You remember Nicodemus in John three fourteen through sixteen. He was um, uh, one of the main teachers, and Jesus was uh, expressed the astonishment. And you, and you're the teacher of Israel. And you don't know this. And Jesus, um, as he's talking to him there in verses uh, fourteen through sixteen. He reaches back way into the Old Testament. He grabs a passage um, from the wilderness journey when the Israelites were being rebellious and God sent fiery serpents, poisonous serpents in the camp. They were biting them and they were dying. And they call upon Moses to intercede. And Moses interceded and God told him, Moses, take a pole and put a brass serpent on it and put it in the center of the camp so it's high enough that if everybody, whoever looks upon it will not die if they believe. If they ask forgiveness, they believe, then they won't die. Jesus pulls that imagery, which is prophetic, and he applies it to himself. Death is directly implied. The pole is the cross. The brass serpent, brass is judgment. The serpent is sin. Sin would be judged on the cross. And whoever looks upon the one on the cross, they will be saved. Jesus makes that application and interpretation of that passage. Incredible. So he shows exactly the only way for man to have any hope. He declared the all-encompassing benefit of the cross. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, physical death is just temporal. When you die physically, 
you don't cease to exist. There's life after death. Now, whether you believe it or not, it doesn't make any difference. It's a fact. One person told me one time, oh, I can't even imagine myself living forever. What am I going to do? Well, God's not asking if you want to live forever. God's just asking you, where do you want to live forever? Heaven or hell? You're going to live forever. Jesus told his disciples the oneness of his death and resurrection over and over and over again, but they didn't hear nothing. Because they were, they were so set on their own understanding about God's plan. They had their theology all neatly packaged and sealed as Jews. At Caesarea Philippi, if you remember, that's up north above the Galilee by the Golan Heights, down by the foot of Mount Hermon. And there at Caesarea Philippi, you had all these false worship of gods. In fact, the tradition is that the god Pan came out of that cave at the foot of Mount Hermon. And that's where you get pantheism, that all is God, the trees, everything else. Um, and at Caesarea, it says, as he's speaking there, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and be raised from the dead. Now, when they heard that he'd be dead, that's all they heard. They didn't hear the resurrection. Sometimes I'm preaching, I'm teaching, and somebody, and somebody maybe is not a believer, or maybe they're a believer and they've got their own agenda. And once I say one thing, boom, turns them off, they don't hear anything after that. And that's the way we are. You know if you're a parent, because you tell your child, do this, and they kind of like it, and they say, now remember, do this also. And they, you know, and then when they don't do what you told them to do, but they do what, they, what, you, what you said they could do, then you say, what did I tell you? I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't hear that. We're very selective, right? Peter confessed there, by the way, as uh, Jesus said, who do Men say that I am. He said, well, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah. And, and, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, but who do you say that I am? He says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, blessed thou art, Son of our Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And on this rock, this gigantic truth that I am the Son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Wow. Thank God that the church is not built on Peter. We'd be dead built on Jesus Christ. Once again at Galilee, Matthew 17, 22 to 23, Jesus says, now, while they were staying uh, in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will rise up again. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. He mentions both death, resurrection, together. From Caesarea Philippi, is six months to the cross. He's walking under the shadow of the cross. From that point forward, he never mentions his death without his resurrection. Not one time. Always together. As they approach Jerusalem, it says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, 
to be scourged and to be crucified. And the third day he will rise again. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. There it is again. Prior to his betrayal, in Matthew 26, 31 through 32, he says, When Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after this, I have been raised. I will go before you into Galilee. Death, resurrection again, all together. They had the message, but they were so set that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to set up the kingdom and knock off Rome. Because in the Jewish mind, you had the present age, the age to come. They had no room for death. See, a lot of people want to be Christians, but they don't, they don't want to go through testings. They just want to believe the gospel of being preached of health and wealth, right? That God can make me rich. And that I can do anything. Well, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a fallen world. In fact, if you're a Christian, Jesus says, in the world you shall have tribulation, be a good cheer, I have overcome the world. He told the first church when Paul was preaching in Asia Minor, he says, remember, we must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulations. <laughs> When's the last time you heard an altar call like that? Hey, any of you guys want to enter the kingdom of God with many tribulations? Come on forward. You see, so it's a half a gospel. It's not a true gospel. Jesus in death became the payment for sin and through the resurrection, the author of eternal life. Due to the fact that Adam sinned in the garden and all of us inherited sin and death through him, Romans 5, 12. Wherever there's death, it's because of sin. And wherever there's sin, there's going to be death. One is the result of the other. The minute a baby dies, I've told you often, we, we celebrate the birth of that child, but it's the first day of their death. First breath they take, the first day they start dying. God told Adam in Genesis in the garden, he says, the day you eat, dying you shall die. So when a baby's born, they're dying. First week, they're dying. Dying, dying, they're four years old, dying, 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 20 years old, dying, 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 60 years old, dying, 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 then they finally die at 71. But you're dying all the time. It's just that we don't know it. When we're young, we don't see the aging. Once you get past 40, 45, then you pick up speed. <laughs> you start like a, a grape and you end up like a raisin. That's the way it goes. At a certain age, you don't buy bananas green. You buy them always yellow. <laughs> we're all going to die, ladies and gentlemen. But where are you going to spend eternity? It's not a scare tactic. It's a fact. It's also due to the fact that all are under sin's nature's power. Every one of us. I would love to tell you that I've never sinned. I would love to tell you that I'm the greatest guy. But actually, I'm a great sinner. Just like you. Every time a woman gives birth to a child, she brings another little cute sinner into the world. <laughs> they're cute, but they're sinners. They're just, and you know what the problem with your baby when you took him home? He's just like you. He's yours. He's a sinner. That's what we produce. 
And ultimately, because of that sin, death is here. Babies die. Young people die. Healthy people die. Also due to the fact that all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, not one of us um, is able to hit the target 100%. Um, you know, we might go up to the balcony and all of us try to see how close we can get to the stage jumping off. Uh, some of you guys are young and you think, yeah, I can get it. You might make it out to the seventh row before you break your back, but you'll never hit the stage. We're all going to miss. That's the picture of man. But the heart of man, the pride of man says, hey, I don't need God. I'm good enough. And to prove it, you always pick someone worse than you. That way you look better. You're not stupid. But it's due to the fact also because we're all under God's wrath. God is holy. He's so holy, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we're just very fortunate he doesn't barbecue us right in the spot. He's the epitome of holiness. We are the epitome of sin. And he's made this incredible provision that to pass it up is sheer stupidity. But such is the case every generation. But it's also due to the fact that he came to die to be the ransom for many, that Lamb of God, to give that provision to as many as will open their heart to him. That's the type of God that we serve. Because sin, first of all, is against God, then against each other and with each other. It's always the vertical first. When Adam sinned, he sinned first against God. Then he sins against his wife and the entire human race, both of them. So it's always vertical, then horizontal. So my forgiveness first has to be with God to get right with him. Then I can get right with people. But if I just get right with people, I'm not right with God. I'm not right. I'm just not right. You may be sitting here listening to the gospel I'm preaching, and from your point of view, consider that there's not really anything of much value in the gospel. But being allowed to listen to the gospel is a high privilege, and therefore it places high responsibility before God, not before me, but before God, because to those of much is given, much more is required. Every person in hell right now knows the consequences of having rejected the gospel and how they would give anything they could to have another opportunity to hear the gospel and escape the wrath of God to come upon them at judgment. You ever do something really stupid? I mean, really stupid. And what you would give to be able to have that day over again. But you can't. Nothing's undoable. Nothing is, can be undone. So the only solution that you and I have as sinful men and women is to fall upon the feet of Christ and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me for all I've done against you. It's forgiveness. Absolute forgiveness by what he did for us. Wow.
Only those responding to the gospel understand the high privilege by the gospel that has transformed them and are ever thankful to God for every day that they live under his grace. Wow. It's appointed unto every man to die once, and after that the judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says, no one can escape it. The cross, you see, without the resurrection would be like uh, using a credit card that has been canceled. It would be fraud. It would be worthless. If Jesus would have just died and never risen, then we're fooling ourselves. We should have slept in. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty because they were doubting the resurrection. They were teaching the resurrection didn't exist in the church of Corinth. Paul again says, yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. So if in fact we say that God raises the dead, but in fact Jesus wasn't raised, then we're really found to be liars. And we're just fooling ourselves. But the tomb was empty. I've been over to Israel 20 some times. I've entered that same tomb. It's still empty. (laughs) He's not there. The cross is the pavement. For the sins of the world and the resurrection is the receipt as the accepted payment. When you pay your house off, you pay your car off, they're going to give you the pink slip, the title deed. The loan company sends you a letter, Mr. Smith, why haven't we received your payment this month? We're going to charge you some delinquent interest. Well, you're the first one to get on the horn and say, you made a mistake, I have the pink slip. Car's mine. Or the bank for your house deed. That's exactly what happens with your sin. You hold a pink slip, it's your Bible. Your new birth in Christ Jesus. Paul again in First Corinthians fifteen, sixteen, and seventy says, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not raised or risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, empty. And then here's the worst of it all. Ready? We're still in our sins. So if if Christ didn't rise, then I'm still in my sins. How pitiful is that to think that you're safe, but you're really damned? Then also those who have fallen asleep died. In Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most Pitiable, 1 Corinthians 15, 18-9. The most to be pitied. If what we're saying, what we're preaching, and what we're professing is mere myth, then we are the most to be pitied on this earth. But we're not. If you take the evidence of the New Testament, you take it into a courtroom, and you present all the witness, all the evidence, that jury would have to conclude that Jesus was the Son of God who died for the sins of the world, rose from the dead, and sits at the right hand of the Father. There's no other conclusion it can come to. The 12th Psalm, 501 times Psalm, Paul's Psalm. And by the way, as hard as it may seem for you to believe, Jesus appeared to many people in the jails in Iran because a lot of Muslims are being saved right now through 
through the gospel more than ever before. Incredible. You see, Jesus is alive. He's not dead. The cross speaks of death for every person in order that they might have eternal life through the Son, Jesus Christ. Again, Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died, listen, for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So it was prophesied, predicted before it would happen, so when it happened, you know God revealed it. He's true to His Word. The cross of Christ was looking towards the resurrection. The wrath of God was poured upon him. He was separated for the first time from all eternity. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Third verse down in Psalm 22, because you're holy. Jesus became sin. The Father couldn't look upon him. The Father turned his back on the Son for the first time. The Son was separated for the first time in a way that you and I don't understand because he took my place. He became literal sin that I might have a chance to be saved and forgiven. Wow. Notice the resurrection of Christ then was looking towards the forgiveness of sinners. That's the goal. The whole purpose. Through the proclamation called the gospel, which is good news, the message of faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. And he's quoting Habakkuk 2, 4. That's Old Testament. The gospel. Virgin born, sinless, the God-man. Amazing. The message of faith in Christ as our substitute. Imparting to us his righteousness, not our own. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he took Jesus, he put all my sin on him, he took his holiness, put it on me. Once again, who do you think got the best deal? Wow. Wounded for our transgressions. Laid upon us, on him, the iniquity of us all. Which of us would um, give our son to die for ISIS? Which of us would give our son for gangbangers who just kill people callously? God gave his son for you and for me. A world that's in rebellion against him. Wow. You see, the message of faith in God's righteous standard for life is the only thing he accepts. Man cannot be accepted by God until he acknowledges his or her sin, that they are sinners. Our righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6 says, is this filthy rags. There's only one translation that translates that word literally and accurately. And sadly to say, it's a Jehovah Witness Bible. It's a menstrual garment. Our righteousness is as a menstrual garment. That's how bad my good is. 
before God who is holy. I have nothing to offer him. I have nothing to present to him that he said, well, I, I, yeah, you make it. Come on in. Now, when I compare myself to you, I may look pretty good. When you compare yourself to me, you might look pretty good. But here's a, here's a, here's a standard. Here's the plumb line. You and God. How you doing? And he does this not to condemn us. He does this not to crush us. He does this to open our eyes to see what a desperate situation we're in and that our only hope is him. Why does he do this? Because he loves us. Why do you as a parent go out of your way to try to reach your child and confront him with reality because you hate him or because you love him? Now, your child thinks you hate him. Let's get that straight. But you don't. He thinks you're trying to make his life miserable. But you're not. That's a picture of God in us. And it's through the invitation that all mankind repent from their sins. By the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18, to justify me, to forgive me, to make me a new creature, to give me a new divine nature. Revealing the wisdom of God to no man in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, not according to the wisdom of man. Wisdom of man always justifies and excuses and points fingers and, you know, they go for dysfunctionalism. It's not my fault, my parents, you know, and the kid, they took my milk money away. And, you know, we're raising a bunch of pansies in America today. There's no men around. Everybody can't handle life. It's always somebody's fault. They need protection. My Lord. God excludes no one. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should fall to come to repentance. Yet not all will come. Some of you may not know Jesus Christ this morning and you will pass up the chance of being saved. I don't know if you have another chance. You can. I don't know you can. You will. You could be like the thief on the cross. I don't know how many times they heard the gospel, but I knew they heard it that time and I knew that was the only time after that. So I don't know. Tomorrow's promise to nobody. Repentance means a change of mind with a change of heart. It's evidence in life. It implies um. An acknowledgement of my sin, a confession of my sin, an abandonment of my sin, and trusting Christ to live my life now. I'm set apart, consecrated to God. I live for Him and through Him, through the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. Never sinless, never perfect, but I can hit the mark now. I can see both sides of the streets now. As a non-believer, I only saw one-way street. The message, both of the New and the Old Testament, is boiled down to one word. You ready? Repentance. That's what's being ignored from the pulpits of America today. That's why our nation's in the trouble it's in. You hear a lot of gospel about how God wants you to be rich. How God wants you to be healthy. How if you had enough faith, you would have a Rolls Royce. Or they mix the gospel with human philosophy and psychology and just make you feel good about yourself. The esteemed gospel. But 
the churches are not preaching repentance anymore. Woe to those shepherds. You see, I don't want to be negative. They don't, they don't want to turn people off. Are you kidding me? They're going to hell. And you're worried about turning them off? Because they're going to hell, God wants to turn them on. Open their eyes. The message is just very clear repentance. The prophets called the people of God who had walked away from God to repentance. John the Baptist, um, well, the last prophet, Malachi, who um, uh, spoke in the Old Testament, uh, he preached repentance in view of their sinful lifestyle because Jesus was coming and the first coming. After 400 years of silence where God didn't speak no more, how did the New Testament open up? John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. John the Baptist got thrown in jail. Jesus begins his ministry. What does he preach? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Not the self-esteem gospel. Now do you have enough faith? You're going to be rich, healthy, and wealthy. You're going to get a Rolls Royce, and you know, you're going to all this. Not, this, is all, this is a foreign gospel. It's only in America. <laughs> and we're making people comfortable while they're headed for hell. Wow. Jesus left what the apostles teach, what they preach. You turn the book of Acts, it says one thing. As the Holy Spirit fell upon them. What must we do to be saved? Repent. Repent. There is um, no other person that can do that for you except Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father by me. That's a pretty sweeping statement. He destroyed every ism, every other way. No other person can do it. Acts 4.12 says there's only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved, Jesus Christ. Mary can't save me. Peter can't save me. The Pope can't save me. Rick Warren can't save me. Nobody. Okay? Just the name of Jesus. There's only one meteor between God and man, the one between us, to reconcile us. 1 Timothy 2.5. The man Christ Jesus. To me, the gospel is very clear and very narrow. It's God's way. Man wants to make it broader. Uh-uh. The broad way, and I'm not talking about shopping, <laughs> is, good, is the way to hell. The straight and narrow is the way to heaven. Jesus made it. You can't change the gospel. Today, the emergent church is redefining Christianity. The Christian and the gospel. Be careful. It's like that frog in the kettle. That fire is turned up so gradual the water that he just sits there and boils to death. Won't jump out. People are being lulled to sleep with the goodness of man. Listen, finish the sentence. Good for nothing. I'm good for sin. How about you? It's been 42 years, but I still remember. You want to go sin? I'm ready. Never forget. I was a great sinner. Spurgeon put it this way. Listen carefully. I used to think if I could um, see the lost in hell, surely I must weep for them. But there is no such sentiment 
as that known in heaven. The believer there shall be satisfied with all of God's will. Even their loss has been their own fault. If my parents could see me in hell, they would have, uh, they would not have a tear to shed for me, though they were in heaven. For they would say, it is just thou great God. In other words, God is so perfect in his holiness that when he makes a judgment, it's never a mistake. And when you're in heaven, you would agree perfectly in heaven. You'll agree with him here if you're born again because you're a child of God. But in heaven, we'll really agree. There'll be no doubts at all. He went on to say, Oh, believe me, if you could roll all sins into one mass, if you could take uh, murder and blasphemy and lust and adultery and fornication and everything that is vile and unite them all into one vast glob of black corruption, they would not equal even then the sin of, ready? Unbelief. That's it. This is the monarch's sin, the quintessence of the guilt, the mixture of the venom of all crimes, the dredge of the wine of Gomorrah. It is the A1 sin, the masterpiece of Satan, the chief work of the devil. What did he say to Adam? Did God say, brought doubt, unbelief? He ate. The whole human race fell. Sin entered in. Death followed. Wow. You see, sin is terminal as a disease, if you want to look at it that way. Because we were born in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2, 1, 1 and 2 says. Spiritually dead. I have to be made alive by the gospel. You can be forgiven. From all your sins. There is no sin that God will not forgive. Now, some people may not forgive you. Some people may never allow you to forget. But that's not the most important. The one important is is God. He says, there is nothing you have done. There's nothing you can do that I'm not able to forgive. The only sin I can't forgive is the one you don't confess to me. Wow. The grace of God is as powerful today as it was in the day of Pentecost. You see, every one of God's attributes are called immutable. That means they can't increase or decrease. If you go down to the Pacific Ocean, you grab a five-gallon bucket of water, or just a cup, coffee cup. You just decrease the Pacific Ocean by a coffee cup. All the sins that have been committed from the beginning of time, and all the sins that God has forgiven, have not affected His grace or any of His attributes. They're constant. So the problem is not with God to forgive sin. It's on the side of man to repent from sin. To confess it. Sin is not an invention of Christians. It's not a scare tactic. Um, It's a fact of history. Look around you. You don't have to look far. You don't have to think of ISIS. Think of yourself. Think of your own personal family. Your friends. Things that go on. The things we do to each other, the things we say to each other, the atrocities that we commit. Because sin reigns as a sin is selfish, it destroys. Hell and the lake of fire are the place that was never made for man, but for Satan and his angel, Matthew twenty five, forty one. The sad truth is that many will perish and end up there when it wasn't made for them. 
God will do everything He can to reach you and any other sinner. How many opportunities you'll have, I don't know. But I know you'll have at least one like those seats on the cross. So always when people ask you, take them to the cross. Those guys heard the same thing, both made different choices. That's the simplicity of the gospel right there. I don't know where, I don't know how, I don't know through who, but I know God will allow you to hear the gospel before you die. If he doesn't allow you to hear the gospel, then how can he judge you? When he judges people, it's because they have rejected him. So if he's holy, just and true, he must give you at least one opportunity because he sent his son to die for the whole world. Simple. So you have at least one chance, but I know you'll have more than one. But the problem is, you don't know when that be. Today's the day of salvation, not tomorrow. So it's an acknowledgement of your sin that you're a sinner called repentance, Second Corinthians 7.10. Godly repentance, recognizing my sin against God, asking forgiveness for my sin, abandoning my sin, and becoming a new creature through that new birth so that God can live through me. Getting into the word of God, praying, growing, believing the gospel. Living in a different way as he leads and guides me. You know, there's the Chinese characters and, and the word, uh, the character for uh, crises is, um, it means two things. It means danger and opportunity. And such is the gospel. The gospel presents both characters. It's danger if you reject it. It's opportunity if you embrace it. But the choice is yours. God does not force anybody to go to heaven. But he wants no one to go to hell. But each person will make that decision and choice. And so our prayer is that you would open your heart to the Lord this morning. Because the resurrection was looking towards the forgiveness of sinners. And if you're not born again, you qualify. And it's the most loving truth that God can give to you. And he says it with a broken heart. And he says it with all the desire to forgive you of all you've ever done and committed to give you a new life in Christ Jesus. The oneness of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is clearly evident through this threefold lens. The life of Christ was looking towards the cross. The cross of Christ was looking towards the resurrection. And the resurrection was looking towards the forgiveness of sinners. God knocks on the door of your heart right now and says, Do you want to repent? Do you want to let me in? Do you want me to forgive you and give you all that's necessary for life and godliness? All you have to say, yes, call on my name. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We pray even now that you hand be upon us, Lord. And Father, we pray for anybody over the internet or the radio or even here, Lord, that you would just make yourself known to them. They would call on your name. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. If God has showed you your need of salvation, that he, his wrath is upon you, but that he loves you so much that if you call on him, he'll forgive you, then this is your prayer. It's called repentance. 
Right where you sit, you can ask him right now. This is your prayer to him, not to us. And he's going to make you his son or daughter. He's going to bury your sins in the deepest ocean. And he's going to give you eternal life. So you can repeat out to me, this is your prayer. As you ask the Lord to do this for you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.